Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Hey, you are listening to The Workplace Theater. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Adrian Rowe. Adrian is the head of workplace strategy at Raytheon Technologies. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm with Adrian Rowe. We got introduced by one of my later podcast guests, Ryan Anderson. He said she'd be a wonderful guest to have. So I'm very glad that she is here. Hi, Adrian. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. You are in uh, the US, so it's morning for you. Well, it's afternoon for me. <laughs> That's always the thing with these remote setups. But I'm very glad that nowadays you can easily record a podcast and not have to be in the same room because otherwise I would have missed out on so many great people, basically. So let's start immediately with what your role is and your professional background so people get the same infos that I already have. <laughs> Sure. So I head up workplace strategy and planning for Raytheon Technologies. I've been here for a little over a year. And prior to RTX, I did similar work at Merck and uh, prior to that at Fidelity Investments. Workplace strategy is something I've done for probably about the past 10 years. Prior to that, I was with Disney Parks and Resorts in Orlando in a whole bunch of different roles, but always on that um, border between sort of the employee experience and the business. So it's always been a passion of mine. A couple of my colleagues are going to be very jealous now hearing that you've worked for Disney. <laughs> it's a great experience. They're a terrific employer, for sure. You've worked at a couple of organizations and looked at their workplace strategy. What do you personally appreciate about the office as an environment? Because I imagine office at Disney probably looks different than an office where you're at now or at Fidelity. And do you have a favorite work setting? Yeah, so I appreciate office environments that are designed to bring people together. And I think that's more relevant now than ever. So environments that have great common spaces, collaboration spaces, places you can run into people. Those are, I think, the most energizing and effective environments. I also very much appreciate lots of natural light. And when the design is really put in place to kind of maximize access to that light and environments that are interesting and have a range of different settings, except private offices, not a huge fan of those, of dedicated private offices. I also love work environments that incorporate little surprises and discoveries, you know, sort of the very subtle branding elements and cultural elements. And those are just a lot of fun. And that might be the Disney and me coming out. I very much appreciate that type of thoughtful design. For myself, my personal favorite place to work is, pandemic aside, would be a work cafe. I love being able to do work with sort of a buzz of activity around me and have the opportunity for an unexpected interaction while I'm sitting there drinking some great coffee. Yeah. You've already given a range of 
things that are discussed in our industry as options for the future office. What do you think, now going away from your personal preference, future workplace environments will look like? What are the likely scenarios? Because, yeah, there's going to be personal preferences. There's going to be different company cultures. What do you think will be what we're going to look at in terms of choice in the future? I think our definition of workplace is going to continue to expand. So rather than thinking of workplace as a place you go to do your work, for many of us, it's a a network or an ecosystem of different locations where work can be done. And we have to think about that holistically. Now that said, there are a whole bunch of jobs where the workplace is the workplace because the work physically cannot be done anywhere else. And they are a very important group as well that I think frankly has been underattended to by our industry. You know, healthcare workers, retail, factory workers, labs, we need to start giving those groups some love. But um, in general, I think the, in terms of knowledge work, the definition is going to expand. I also think in terms of the built environment that we're going to see a shift towards more event-based strategy. So where we have been, I think, for the past 10 years or so, really focused on finding the right balance between individual and collaborative work, I think it's going to be less of a balance and more of a focus on the collective activity, right? Where people will come together as groups and leaders get better at choreographing those types of interactions. We'll see environments that are really built more for those, the, the cadence of the whole team comes together for a few days and then disperses. I think that's probably where this is going if I were to put my money on anything, but because things change so fast, I don't ever put my money on anything. So <laughs> take that for what it's for what it's worth. Now, as you said it, that view on a non-knowledge worker workplace settings and B on looking at workplaces more as a, I want to call it playground maybe for people to meet and host events is a new thing. It's not something that is like one-on-one workplace strategy. How would you say you are making decisions right now and how can workplace leaders capture space demand for the time being? With that in mind for the future, of course. Yeah. So I want to be clear that what I foresee as a workplace practitioner as a potential future state is very different from what leaders might be envisioning who are not in this world every day and are thinking about what their experiences have been in their teens. And so our profession is always going to be sort of out ahead of that. And leaders are, as they're making decisions now about space, are still, I think, largely tethered to their past experiences. So they're not there yet, is what I'm saying. In terms of capturing demand, this is a really tough one because things are changing so quickly. And I'm a numbers person. I love data. And two years ago, I would have pulled out all of my charts and graphs on utilization data and observational studies and you know the balances of you know collective to individual work, et cetera. But now all bets are kind of off. So I think we have to continue to measure actual presence in the office and understand why people are where. But I think that the, the notion that we can estimate demand and build for it and have that materialize in the nine to 12 months it takes to do a project is probably obsolete. That instead, you know, because things change much faster than our, our lead time for a project. So Instead, we need to be thinking about ranges. We need to be thinking about spaces that will feel good, whether it's 50 people or 100 people, so that we have room on either side. 
So I think that's really where the demand calculation should sit is more in the, we should be less focused on trying to get to that absolute value and more focused on planning for a range and building spaces that will flex up and down. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. That'd be my next question. Uh, goes into the same direction of things that we don't yet know, definitely. But as you're a numbers person, I hope you'll have ideas. And it is how should we measure the success then of what we're putting out in terms of workplace offering? So, the, you know, the ultimate outcome of any workplace environment is are we producing great work? Unfortunately, the number of steps between the environment and the output There's a lot of them and it's, it's always tough to kind of, you know, make those linkages. So we do the best we can with things like, is it being used efficiently? You know, what's our utilization rate on a daily basis? And then is it effective? Meaning is good work happening there? Are people happy there? What are they saying about the environment? Is it bringing people together? But one thing I think that we are going to need to start doing more in the future is understanding the effectiveness in the, of the workplace in bringing groups together and in supporting networks. So back in the day when the assumption was everybody came into the office, you could take it for granted. You could take the connectivity of people within the space for granted. But now, you know, there's a lot of question about how little in-person interaction can we get away with before relationships start to erode and networks start to erode and mentorships stop happening. So I think we are going to need to start getting good at things like social network analysis or organizational network analysis. And there are a few groups who are, you know, kind of playing with that. But I think we're going to have to be able to answer that question. It, at a minimum, is our, is our workplace network not doing any harm? And how is it supporting us really building a vibrant culture and connections among people. Because that's where the good stuff happens, right? Is when two people within an organization get together to do work. So we want to be sure that we're, we're really nurturing those, those connections and we need a way to figure out if the environment is helping or hurting. Yeah. And it's been the thing that's mentioned most times as the value that office is supposed to add or is adding. So actually being able to show that I think also help with communicating to the wider staff on why it is still necessary that you meet in the office, because there is currently, I think, a little bit of a tendency and a focus on the on the me, what's most convenient for me. And you kind of have to remind that there is a workplace community as well that benefits from you being there, but it's hard to tap into because it could happen on a given day that you go and you are in focus work and you don't really talk to anyone. Yep, a hundred percent. And this is especially challenging when you have very accomplished professionals who have been in their field for years and years, really know what they're doing and can do it anywhere. So I think there's the workplace component of it, but then there's also redefining what the role is. So for some of those folks, their job should include mentoring and knowledge transfer to new entrants in their field and on their team. So that's not necessarily a workplace function. That's a function of what is the expectation of the job? And part of your job as a more you know, senior person on the team is to bring those folks along. So I think you know, it, that just sort of underscores our need to really partner with HR and with leadership and think about this as a big picture rather just as you know, how are we doing space? Yeah, and it taps into the wider problem of the performance 
suit for leaders need to include those employee well-being aspects as well, because if you only focus on tasks accomplished or revenue achieved or whatever, that sustainability of employees keeping going can be lost along the way. And I think there's several researchers, something from Deloitte just came out last week as well, where there was like, I love the headline because it was a little bit cynic. It said that the major obstacle towards higher employee well-being is work. So it's like, okay, interesting. <laughs> but it is true. It absolutely is true. And you know, we, having grown up professionally at Disney, was taught from a very early age that you got to take care of your people to take care of your customer. And so if your people are thriving, then your customer can thrive, that they are the link and there's a, a value chain there. So um, I think we are all you know, intuitively aware of that, but we have to be really mindful about making it a priority and recognizing that you know, that is taking care of the business. Taking care of your people is taking care of the business because they're the ones who are delivering your product. Which actually nicely segues into question. In building for hybrid or remote work, which is more on demand for mostly for employees, but also organizations are seeing the advantages of it even more and seeing how they can help with talent attraction, talent retention. What are the traps and friction points in building for that? That is a great question. Um, so I would first start by saying that I think the idea that we have gone from this totally present altogether workplace to something different is a little bit of an illusion that for any company that is even not multinational, but certainly multinational companies, distributed work has been the way of the world for a while now, even long pre-pandemic. So whether you're doing your work on Zoom from home or on Zoom from an office that's in a different state, we've been doing things like you and I are doing right now for a really long time. So I think we have to recognize that and know that, you know what, it wasn't like you thought it was. The good old days maybe weren't exactly as you maybe envisioned them, um, and it hasn't been that huge of a change. But that said, I think there is always a temptation to just simply densify space. To, to look at the utilization and say, okay, fewer people are there, I'm just gonna make it smaller without really addressing the functionality of the space and how it's serving the activity that does happen there. And what's happening now is that people are telling us, well, I come in for a reason. I come into the office to be with my team for a special meeting to do a presentation. And so the function of the space is much different than it was when people were coming in to do their individual work and expense reports and email. And yet the design may not have changed if you're just doing a densification play. So I think that's always a temptation, but you have to, at the very beginning, say, okay, if we're going to densify, we also need to transform. So some of those savings have to be reinvested into the space to make it fit for purpose. So that's one. And then what happens is if the space is dated, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like people stop showing up and then they stop showing up even more because they don't want to use the space. But I think the other thing, two other things I would say is that we are very used to making workplace change incrementally and slowly, like we'd like to, you know, dial things down up and up a little bit. And I think we may be at a moment where it's time for a step function change. Like it's that fundamental. It really is time to think about this whole thing differently. So I think resisting the urge to just be, you know, very, very gradual and try some different things is going to be important. The most, the biggest trap though I see right now, or the biggest challenge is that there is, there seems to be a gap in expectations between a portion of senior leadership 
versus, and this is across employers everywhere, I'm seeing this everywhere, between leaders and their employees, where employees are being very clear in saying, flexibility is great, I'm doing great, I can decide where and when to do my work, and work is getting done. But leaders are still apprehensive, and I'm generalizing, but there is a, a portion of leadership that's saying, not sure that's going to work. I mean, even after two years of firsthand experience with this, they're still hesitant. And I believe that's because there is a, a tendency among all of us to, to default to our own experience and to make the assumption that what has worked for me, maybe for 30 years, is what's going to work in the future. And it's just simply not true. You know, I mean, and some leaders have been, you know, in fact, the more senior they are, the more wildly successful they've been in a very traditional way of work. So the more that message is reinforced, and that's totally understandable. But I think the challenge that we have to step up to is setting that aside and really looking at the future state and where we are right now relative to that future state and thinking what needs to work moving forward? What do we need to do? Um, And not assuming that it's some version of the past. I think that's true for many areas in our lives, that it is very dangerous if you come from your own experience, your own mindset and have the feeling or belief that it's the same for everybody. I've actually been at an event where somebody at the panel said, well, going to the office is what grown-ups do. And I was like, okay, at the mid-30s age, I'm apparently not a grown-up because I do like to work from home occasionally. But yeah. And there's also, I think... um There's, you know, and just to kind of pull on that thread a little bit more, there is a really important diversity and inclusion dimension to that phenomenon. So if you're constantly looking backwards on your own experience, by definition, you're saying what matters to me should matter to you. And therefore, you're going to just continue to reinforce the structure that was in place that made you successful. And if you're a privileged white guy, that's maybe not the best way to think about your diverse workforce moving forward, right? And so that mentality of what's worked for me should work for everybody, and um, this is the way it's done, negates the opportunity to really bring others into the fold who may have completely different needs than you had. So I I just wanted to reinforce that because I think it's a very important element we need to be attending to. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Which actually brings me to something else around employee experience. What are the common misperceptions we have? I think those two are probably pretty much tying into each other. Yeah. And you said before you don't like single offices, so that might be (laughs) one of the... (laughs) Mainly I don't like single offices because I feel like it's just such a waste of space and we can do so much more with it. Um, Not that they're inherently, you know, evil places to be, but we can do better than single offices. So I think... Um, there's a few misperceptions. One is, let me start by saying, we like to minimize risk. We really like to eliminate the possibility of bad things happening, which means oftentimes we set up our rules as a way to prevent bad things happening versus encouraging good things to happen. And from an employee perspective, that may be starting with an assumption that people are going to do the wrong thing. And so we set up our rules to say, oh, well, you know, we need to really be sure that nobody's going to game the system and that they're going to do what we want them to do. But I think the better place to be is to start with the assumption that we've hired good people, we've hired responsible people, and they are here because they want to do good work. So let's start there. Let's start with the assumption of 
good intent. And when you think about it in that way, maybe it's not as big a deal to set up all of these thou shalt nots in your policy that can sort of restrict what your workplace experience could be. So, you know, and I think that's, to me, that's what's behind these mandates, these presence mandates. You know, you have to be here. It's a lack of trust in a lot of ways. And I think that's born out of the wrong assumption. The other thing I would say about employee experience is that there's a way to compensate for a lack of flexibility. And we're learning that there just isn't. You know, there's no coffee good enough to overcome a bad commute and to, you know, there's no furniture comfortable enough to replace your ability to be a better mom or dad at home because you happen to be there at the moment your kid needs you and can do pick up and drop off. And I know this is true because of what's been happening at Apple, right? I mean, they just built a headquarters that cost $5 billion and yet they're getting pushback on presence because of all of these things. So I think we have to recognize that and recognize that flexibility really is that important to people. And if you are going to take that away or minimize it in some way, there's going to be a big cost and we need to take that into account. From what I've seen on the Apple case, I think another element might be the things, the way things were communicated, as in taking pulse service, taking people's opinions, and then The communication was like, you wanted this great headquarters. And people are like, wait, well, I did not want this. This is not what their survey said. And that is like, you as you said, you hired smart people, treat them like they are smart people. Don't pretend stuff. They're going to see through it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's like asking a vegetarian, do you want the chicken or the steak? I don't know. You know, if you're asking the wrong question you're not going to get the right answer, you know, but I, I think it's just starting from that assumption that everything has to happen here. And, but yeah, no, I agree with you. And if you don't trust your employees, that's a, an entirely different problem that needs to be addressed in a completely different way and a very important problem. But let's maybe think about where that problem sits. Is it because the employee is not trustworthy or is it because the leader doesn't have comfort and hasn't maybe, and maybe we don't have the right performance metrics and the right deliverables established to gauge performance. And, um, and so maybe that's where we need to focus our attention in those situations. Yeah. Bringing it back to the realm that we have a stake in to corporate real estate and the people acting in that space, what are, in your opinion, the new skill sets that corporate real estate needs to adopt to be able to kind of bring things on the way and also like possibly bring a perspective on the shiniest office in the world. It's not going to compensate for certain things. Oh, that's a really good question. So, I mean, we have to know our field, of course, and be on top of what's happening and what's worked for others and what's not worked. We have to be able to measure and provide data. That's really critical. I would also say that our ability to influence thinking and shape thinking is huge. And we need to have patience with our businesses as they're going through this complete upheaval and trying to figure out how to deliver results amidst all of this change. Um, you know, having empathy for what they're going through and helping them through those decisions, I think is, is really important. So that's not something you necessarily learn at Cornet or at WorkTech or any 
you know, it's good leadership and good professionalism to help them understand truly what the risks are so they can make informed decisions. That, that I think, is the really where this all comes out is we have to help leaders really understand the facts and the possible outcomes so that they can make good informed decisions. And then if they make a decision that's, you know, in one direction or another that maybe isn't what we recommended, it's fully informed, right? They're, they have all the information that they need. In the absence of that, that's where we run into trouble. That's where people start relying on, you know, sort of old biases and personal preferences and things that maybe are not in the best interest of the, the business, but just happen to be what they're comfortable with. So our ability to influence that thinking and help people make good decisions is, is really huge. I also think that we have to continue to think holistically and understand the connections between events. Our world is so interconnected now and um, nobody can work in isolation. Nothing great happens with one person's work. So our ability to understand those connections and to amplify them so that um, we can have good outcomes is really important as well. I have two last questions that I ask all my guests, and I would hope they're easier questions, because one is, if you could magically solve any workplace problem, what would it be? I would kill the cubicle. Just kill it. Get rid of it. <laughs> it's a failed experiment. It, it doesn't provide privacy or collaboration, it's just get rid of the cubicle. But that's pandemic aside. The first thing I would do was get rid of the pandemic because I think that's a huge workplace challenge. But um, yeah, the, all those panels, they get in, in the way of natural light and then people can't see who's you know around them and can't modulate their voice. That would be the first thing. I'm really surprised as well how long it's been around and why, why? <laughs> Basically just... We hate risk and we are you know, we default to incremental change and cubicles feel like incremental change. Okay, well, you can't have an office, um, but we'll give you a cubicle, we'll give you these high walls, you know, well, yeah. So we want you to be out in the open, but we'll, you know, give you a little bit of privacy. So it's these compromise solutions and that, that's what the cubicle represents to me. It's like the macaroni and cheese of workplace, you know, it doesn't really do anything for anybody, um, but, but it's on every menu, right? Because it's just easy to do. So yeah, let's kill a cubicle. Yeah, I love that. The mac and cheese of the workplace. I just made that up right now. I know a lot for a Monday. But. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Last question. And that's actually the way I got you for the podcast, because it is who else should I talk to? And is there something you would like to ask them? Oh, you definitely want to talk to Randy Winery. He's great. He's at Fidelity Investments and is a designer by training um, and has, had been, has been involved with some really interesting Project. So I would ask him if he had carte blanche to design the perfect workplace, what would it include? That would be a great question. Probably not the cubicle. I highly doubt Randy would include a cubicle, which is one of the reasons I like him so much. Well, thank you, Adrian. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. That was really, I feel like I downloaded a lot of information in a very short amount of time. So appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully my thoughts were coherent. I'm not quite fully caffeinated yet, but this was a lot of fun. It's, you know, I think it's a super exciting time in our world and a really important time. So these are great questions to be thinking about. And um, it, was a, it was a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there's more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We've just released the Definitive Guide to Workplace Analytics, for instance. Or tune in to our next episode of The Workplace Leader.
This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.